Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your hands. Let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work Ram Zone. I hope you're never the same. You know, as I intro the subject today, just a little bit of a gym jaunt here. So many of us get caught up in doing things the way we do them. When somebody asks me, why do you, when, when I ask people, I work with small business owners all across Tampa Bay, and I ask them, hey, why do you do it that way? And when I get the answer, well, that's the way we've always done it. When I get that answer, I know immediately that there's an opportunity for improvement in that area. And if it's so in the business, it's also so in our churches. Because so often we get stuck just in our box, operating in our box because it's a comfortable little box, even though the box that used to be on the highway is now off on a dead-end road. But we're still in our box, so we feel really good about our box, but it's not the box we should be in anymore. Today, our guest wrote a book called Canoeing the Mountains. I got a hold of this book. Late last fall, uh, a manuscript copy, and and my, the person gave to me said, "Listen, Jim, you are gonna love this book." Well, I got a chance to read this the first week of December, and I got to tell you, this book is unbelievable. Our author, speaker, and and executive at Fuller Seminary in California is Todd Bolzinger. Todd, welcome to I Work for Him. 
Yeah, thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on. You know, as as we talk about this today, it all reminds me of the paradigm shift that really needs to happen in our lives. If we're really going to follow the Lord, we need to follow what Romans 12, 2 says, which says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And I don't know about you, but I know in my own life that changing the way I think of it has had to change multiple times because... I get stuck in my paradigm and God wants to move me along in my faith and I have to go back in that, that discomfort zone. And, and you described that so well in this book. I laughed more. I mean, it's almost like a comedy book that you wrote, even though it's not funny, but you hit the nail on the head so many times in your book as we talk about the, the shift that the body of Christ needs to make in the church. Uh, it's just amazing. But before we get into your book, which is incredible, and I would put it on, uh, on just really in the top of my list for 2015, and I read a lot of books. Talk to me about how Jesus Christ is making a difference in your life today. Well, one of the most significant ways is just the uh, affirmation that this book is having, because for 10 years of my life, I traveled around the country. I did over uh, almost 150,000 miles of air travel, going to churches and nonprofits and even, and to business people. And I started realizing that there is this, in the midst of a massively changing, rapidly changing world, we're having, to, for those of us of faith, we're having to think through how do we hold on to the very most important things of our life that we would never, ever compromise, and at the same time, begin to think through the things that we're holding on to that are keeping us from being faithful to Him. And so, so even as I'm uh, talking to people around the country about this book, I'm being faced with that every day. I have to keep, uh, what I say, letting, uh, keep dropping the canoes and crossing mountains, and because there's a part of me that just wants to keep clinging to the stuff I think I know. You know, I learned more about Lewis and Clark from your book than I ever did in social studies. I, know, I, I mean, I, I honestly, and I grew up in Minnesota. So, I mean, I grew up just to the east of the Louisiana, well, actually, Minnesota's part of the Louisiana Territory, but I, I, I grew up in this area that got charted, and I never knew as much as I, I love you as, as I learned from your book, but what I loved so, so much about your book was that, yes, Lewis and Clark got to the end, the beginning of the Missouri River, and they had a canoe, and it wasn't appropriate to get from there to the Pacific Northwest to the coast, but God had waiting for them the horses and the guide in order to take them the rest of the way. And that's really the answer, the the redemption part of this story is that the bad news is we can't keep doing church and we just can't keep doing church the way we've done it the last 50 or 100 years. But God's got a plan, and he's just waiting for us to take hold of those resources. I just think it was such a great example. You drew such a great word picture. It inspired me. Well, I'm so glad. It's it's inspiring to me. And what it, I think what people like about it is very often when we're talking about change, change is very painful and change is really experienced as loss. And and what most of us hear all the time is we have to adapt or we're going to die. And that's true. But what I wanted to say to the church is we're actually in the middle of an adventure and there's an opportunity for us to adventure instead of die. And that there's a great heroic moment in front of us for the church if we're willing to, to seize hold of it. Todd Bolzinger on the line. He wrote this incredible book, Canoeing the Mountains. And Todd, I'll let you, first of all, am I saying your last name right? Because I forgot to ask you before the show. Exactly right. Bolzinger. Okay, okay good. Right. All right. I, well, I don't want to screw it up any more than I, I do many guest names. And I don't want to do that because everybody needs to be able to have their last name said properly. Talk Thank to you. me about the book. What's Talk to me about Canoeing the Mountains. Where did that come from? Yeah, so um, just try to picture August 12th, 1805, after 15 months 
of canoeing upstream, uh, up through the Mississippi River, up the Missouri River, Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery was getting ready to, to what they believe was discover the secret that people had been looking for for 300 years. For over 300 years, everybody had assumed that there would be a water route that would connect the eastern United States to the Pacific Ocean. They all believed it was there. And Lewis, Meriwether Lewis walked up the side of this hill. He thought they were going to carry their canoes a half a day across this little ridge, and they would then they would be able to go downstream. So imagine a group of guys who are all been going upstream through for 15 months. They'd already survived a winter. They'd been they had discovered grizzly bears. They'd had just legions of mosquitoes. Oh, they yeah. had all the things you can imagine. They're getting ready to now coast the rest of the way down to the Pacific Ocean and celebrate and then head home. And they discover in front of them the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> they discover they had 340 miles to cross. Now, the most powerful part about this, Jim, is that they had been told by the Mandan tribe that they were mountains in front of them. They said, hey, you're going to have to cross the mountains. But in their heads, they were thinking Appalachian Mountains, mountains that are common to the eastern part of the United States. Sure. They, they had never imagined 14,000-foot snow-covered peaks stretching for over 300 miles in front of them. They were canoe guys. They were planning on doing, finding a water route. Now all of a sudden they had to make a decision. Do we go back and tell Thomas Jefferson that uh, there's just there's no water route? Or do they press on to discover what's in front of them? And that story of the decision they made at that moment is, I believe, the analogy for where the church finds itself today. We've, we have been uh, traveling up the river, and we believe that the world in front of us is going to be exactly like the world behind us, and we are discovering every single day that we are in completely uncharted territory. Uh, Stephen Ambrose said that when Lewis and Clark stepped over the Lemhi Pass in what is now Idaho, they knew less about the, the uh, land in front of them than, than Neil Armstrong knew about the moon when he stepped on the moon. And that today we find ourselves as a church in exactly that place. The world in front of us is totally different. We've not been prepared for it, and we are trying to figure out how we keep going. But the good news for us is that we have access to all of the answers, if we would just sit there and be quiet and listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit and and be submissive. But a lot of church leaders are like, no, 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 I'm just going to forge on. I'm taking my canoes in the mountains. I'm sure it'll work. And we all know today that you can truly kayak down mountains. We've seen it done on YouTube videos. But the going up part must be really rough. I think they get dropped off by helicopters, and I think those guys were short a couple of those. Yeah, yeah, well, and, yeah, and you can imagine what it must have been like to think about uh, all to, to be taking all that equipment, all those people, all that stuff into uncharted territory. And and one of the parts about it for us, I think, particularly, I mean, I mean, so I, I'm a, I'm a church guy, and I really do believe that when God sends us off on an adventure to fulfill the mission of God in the world, that He sends us off together. So we are the church is supposed to be a core of discovery. And what they discovered when they went over the mountains is not only do, what did what they have it within them, but that God was going to provide what they needed far more than they ever imagined, and that they needed to just be able to learn differently. And, and this book is really about leadership, it's about learning, and it's about dealing with loss. Well, and take that a little bit deeper, the learning, the, the deal with loss. I loved, I loved the way you incorporated your story in all this, and the loss 
that you had to go through in all of this. But what caused you to start writing this book? I mean, 10 years, you said it took 10 years to write it. So what caused you to stop and go, I got to write it. I got to research this. I got to write a book on this. Why? Because you weren't at Fuller Seminary 10 years ago where you can teach this stuff. What caused you to start this a decade ago? Well, so... So ten, uh, 10 years ago, I was pastoring in a congregation that was doing really very well in, in Orange County, California. And, and I loved this congregation. I was there for 17 years. It was God's answer to my uh, every one of my prayers. My wife and I wanted a place where we could raise our children, faithfully live out um, our call as a pastor, and care for this congregation. And, it was, and all that was happening. I had just finished my—I uh, had previously written another book that came out of my doctoral dissertation that was on Christian community and spiritual formation— and I was being asked to, um, to travel to a place in Portland, Maine, where I was asked to meet with a bunch of Christian educators and pastors and talk with them about spiritual formation and Christian community, topics that I love, I still love. And what I found, though, is after speaking, you know, did three talks to this conference on spiritual formation and Christian community, I, they gathered a group of people to have them to ask me some questions. And when they asked me questions, what came out was uh, the questions they wanted to ask weren't about spiritual formation and Christian community. One person after another all wanted to ask the same question, which was, how can we keep our church from dying? And what we began to realize 10 years ago in the northeastern part of the United States, where people have said it's already been in a, what we call a post-Christian world or a post-Christendom world, the world, it was already, the culture was beginning to change, and what has now swept across the country is that there's been this transformation where culture no longer supports Christianity the way it did a generation ago. And so what we find is that most of us were trained for a day when all we had to do to have faithful churches was mostly show up, preach the truth, give program that, reach, that cares for people's felt needs, and worship God with our whole hearts, and that mostly that would work. I mean, it really, really would work. Um, but that was in a day where uh, the culture supported Christianity. Um, one of my friends is about ready to retire. He's been 40 years in ministry, and he's done it all in Alabama, in the South. And he said, I said, well, that, I, I was used to talking to people in California and in Maine. How have things changed even in the South? And he said, well, I'll tell you this, 40 years ago, when I started my ministry, we never worried about evangelism. We never worried about church growth. We never worried about how to keep people in church, because the churches were filled, because everybody went to church. He said, he said if a man, man, skipped church on Sunday, his boss asked him about it at work on Monday. Well, if your employer encourages you're going to church, then that's the culture supporting Christianity. It doesn't mean everybody was a committed Christian, but culture supported right. And today we just live in a profoundly different world than that. We have more more people committed to, you know, what, reading the Sunday paper at Starbucks or taking their kids to soccer than to be in worship. We have competition in many different ways, and the world has just changed so dramatically that one after another, as I was dealing with uh, kind of changes in my own congregation and then beginning to do some coaching and some talking with some pastors in other congregations. I just began to realize a lot of church leaders were saying the same thing, which was, I just was not prepared for this world. I was prepared for this world that is behind us. I, I wish I could, 
I wish I could have been pastoring a generation ago. I would have known what to do. I feel <laughs> well, like I've gone off the map in uncharted territory. Well, and you said in your book that, listen, my seminary training, n- nothing prepared me for this. And I know that that, that is shifting, because I've had guys from seminary on the show. I, I've, I've had leaders and presidents of colleges and seminaries on the show. And I know that that is shifting, that, there, that, that those conversations, even conversations about MBAs being incorporated in, into uh, into uh, MDivs and and doctoral programs that people are starting to learn how to run the business of the church as part of their their doctoral of divinity kind of schooling, but this whole shifting paradigm, where do people go to get the answers on how do I do church today so that it reaches the culture? They, there's, I mean, there are now starting to be some books out there, but are the seminaries responding to that question? Well, they're beginning to, and that's exactly why I'm now at Fuller Seminary. So um, about three years ago, I was praying about this. So, so what I had done is, after going through some transitions in my own congregation, and my own leadership style, I was asked by a consulting group if I would coach other pastors. And what I began to realize is that the pastors themselves felt like they were, they were, they were saying, look, we're, we're really good on rivers. We're not good in mountains. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I just can't canoe harder. You can't try harder. You can't keep doing what you've always been doing. You know, one person said, at the moment of crisis, you do not rise to the occasion. You default to your training. And we were trained for that old world. So now the seminary didn't prepare me for this. Well, I'm at Fuller Seminary today because Fuller Seminary did a, did a survey of its alums. And it found, alums said very, very candidly, we love Fuller, we respect the scholars, these are internationally known, renowned, faithful, evangelical scholars. We learned a lot, but we need a different kind of training for the world we're in. And President Mark Laberton came on as the president of Fuller Seminary, declared that we were going to be we're going to be doing everything we could to help the church matter in the 21st century. Todd, I have sensed this. I, I've been I, I've grown up in the church. I always described to my friends that I had a drug problem when I was a kid. My parents drugged me to church every you know three times a week. But I have seen the the churches, and, and I'm a small business guy, so I deal with it all day long. You get into small businesses, you get into church, they suffer from the same things. They want to keep doing business, or they want to keep doing church the way they've always done it, and you just can't. And and you got inspired as your church just said, it started moving. You realized that you had to make some really tough decisions. What was the big decision that shifted you to say, wow. This is going to be really hard on me. Well, the biggest part was, and this was the part that I that really changed my whole thinking, was that we were in a season of we'd, where we had had 10 years of consecutive growth in our church. By every marker, we were doing great, except for probably the most important marker was that I couldn't get leaders in our church to can, want to continue on serving. They were getting burned out. They were getting tired. There was this kind of growing experience of kind of a malaise happening in our church, and I couldn't figure it out. I'm thinking, we've got more people coming than ever. We've, we're in the middle of a giant building program. We've got lots of excitement, lots of kids, lots of enthusiasm. Why? What's gone wrong here? And what we realized is we brought in a consulting group, and they did some really kind of deep work. I ended up doing some work with this consulting group, and they basically looked at me and said, look, well, the biggest problem we have here is that this entire church believes that it all that its success depends upon you. Wow! And I just wanted to throw up. I just felt like, what happened? I did not get in to be a, to come to be a pastor to build an organization around myself. I want to build something to the glory of Jesus. 
so what happened? And I realized I had to learn how to lead all over again. I had to learn how to lead in a way that would empower my congregation and the members of my congregation to find their calling, including their callings in their workplaces and in the schools and in the community, and not just be about building an institution that they were kind of laboring, uh, even for a pastor who, uh, at the time, they just they told me that they loved me and respected me, and but it was burning them out. But it's and it and it's hard because as a pastor, you've got so many different battles going on in your mind, and it feeds the ego to have a oh, bunch yeah. of people say, "Hey, we love what you're doing. Just keep doing, 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 doing." And and so you're like, "Well, you build an organization that keeps sustaining your existence." Yet yeah. it's never been about the pastor. Yet that's been the danger is because it really feeds an ego. I mean, it, there's yeah. a danger there. So when yeah. you when you started going around and, and interviewing these churches, starting up in Maine and going all over the country, and they kept asking you the question. Why is our church dying? Is answer the question: Is the church, is the body of Christ, really dying in America? Well, well, if you look at the statistics, which we're basically finding out is that, in a nutshell, the way to think about it is that nominal Christians, Christians, people who were Christians because of the culture, or Christians in name only, people who were kind of following the Christian traditions, are declining. They're decreasing. People who used to answer, yes, I'm a Christian, but didn't go to church, those folks go to church even less, or might even today say that they're seekers or they're uh, nuns, um, if you will. You know, they said the fastest-growing religious group under 30 are the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, no religion. And what we're realizing is it's not the body, it's not the core of disciples, it's the cultural support for Christianity. But so as cultural support for Christianity changes, then it changes the nature of what it means to be a disciple. And what, you, what it means is we need more commitment and more commitment to God's mission in every place, more discipleship. Well, I want to stop um, you there before you go too far, because I know you've got so many great things in your head, but you just said that, that really the Church has lost cultural support. It's never coming back either. I mean, in my opinion, do well, let me just let me ask you. You're the expert. You wrote it. You got a doctorate. Is 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 it really coming back? I mean, do you think the culture will ever support Christianity again, or do you think that Christianity is be part of this nation, but it's not going to dictate culture anymore? Well, you know, here's my question. I think I think in one sense it's somewhat irrelevant because what I believe is that whether let's put it this way, whether the wind is at our back and it's easy, or whether the wind is in our face and we have to go hard. The reality is a faithful follower of Christ has to continue on. And so what we're facing with is, you know, it might be smooth sailing, but it's probably more likely going to be stormy seas. And I, so I think what, we, what we're really dealing with is we need a capacity to be faithful to Christ in a changing world where we live out the gospel as, as the world changes. And I think the hardest part for most of us is, if you're my age, I'm, I'm 51, if you're my age or if you're older than me, then you can remember when, a day when the churches were full and all the kids went to youth group, and it was just, all you had to do was open the doors and everything supported it. And today we just don't live in that world in most of the country anymore. But the good, but there's so much good news in that because because of the elimination of people that probably weren't ever really Christ followers anyway, people that are involved in being a body, part of the body of Christ are 
are all in. They've made a decision to be all in. There's the nominal Christians, as you said, are, are out there, but it gives us, it makes it so much easier to share the gospel because now you, I grew up in Minnesota where everybody's just nice and, and it's hard to find those Christ followers versus not because people are just nice. This makes it a lot easier to identify maybe people who are seekers, as you put it, and be able to bring the gospel, the truth, the hope to them because what our cultural, the culture has done, in my opinion, is eliminated this, this Christendom, but now they've also eliminated hope. And so now there's struggling. They're trying to find hope in so many different places. Todd, when you, when you looked at this whole thing, you said that in order for the church to succeed today, the leader has to take a whole different role and and, and you have to take the church off the map from from off of the quote unquote regular church map. But in order to do that, the congregation has to trust the pastor on the map in order for them to trust the pastor to take them off the map. That's a, that's a lot. Explain a little bit of that right here before we go to the break. Well, what it basically means is this, is that if you, a lot of pastors say, hey, we have to be willing to change, and we've got to be more faithful. What I want to say to pastors is, if you want your congregation to change, you have to be congruent. You've got to be willing to lead the transformation. They've got to trust that you're all in before you ask them to be all in. And they also got to believe that you're going to be competent. You're going to be competent with their deepest concerns. You're going to be competent with the scriptures. You're going to be competent with the things of Christ. With competence and congruence, build trust. Todd, as you wrote this book and as you did this research and as you dealt with church leaders and church pastors, uh, and I imagine you dealt with some elder boards and deacon boards, were they freaked out about the changes that needed to happen? Well, you know, some are, I mean, without question. Some are trying to, you know, are hoping. I keep saying that if, um, if you know, 1957 came back again, the church is ready for today. But they're wishing it would come back. They're trying to bring it back. But the reality is most, what it mostly how people have responded to me is they said, thank you for saying what we've known to be true, that we're in a different place, we're in a different world, and we want to be faithful to Christ in the world we're in. And so there was there's resistance because I, I always say people don't resist change. You know, Ronald Heifetz from Harvard said, people resist loss. And there's loss in it. It's difficult. If you're really, really good at canoeing and you can't just paddle harder, it's hard to get out and have to you know, stretch your legs and have to climb the mountain. But it, the important part is that if you're equipped and if you're ready, I do believe that God does equip us for the task in front of us. And most church leaders are ready for the adventure. But are they equipped? So talk to me about this well, that's equipping the question, piece. And right. that's the question, and that's exactly what this book is about. This book is about teaching people the different, the, a different kind of leadership that is less about um, doing the same kind of what I would call management of religious organizations and really genuinely doing leadership, which is leading your people to change and grow so that together you can face your biggest problems. So let's so, just deal with it. Let's make it really personal. You share your story in your church, because as I read it— I mean, it was a painful process for you, but it was a decision that you decided to make. And and it was—talk about what you had to do. Talk about how God used this in your own life. Well, one of the biggest pieces that I had to do is recognize that um, I, that I'm, I'm I'm a pretty decent preacher and I'm a pretty decent speaker, and most of my ministry has been built around the fact that I could preach and speak and people would come and it would work well. But what happens though when people when uh, I realized my congregation wasn't reaching my community the way we said we wanted to reach? We weren't seeing more people come to Christ the way we wanted to see them come. That I I realized I just couldn't preach harder or better or or, I don't know, pound the pulpit more. I had to actually find a way to lead 
them to grow, and that meant I had to grow in ways. I had to not just rely on, say, preaching or good worship or a good program, but actually equip my congregation to be out in the world making a difference and being more, uh, more basically more like a mission community than a congregation of the converted. So talk to me about but, but what did it look like when you implemented it? I mean, you had to learn... I mean, how did I mean you were leading the organization, you were at the top of the organization, but after you went through this transformation, were you still at the top or had you raised up a lot yeah. of people? I mean, talk about how that changed. Well, one of the biggest pieces that changed was that um, I began to realize that we needed a more collaborative form of leadership. So one of the reasons I love Lewis and Clark is that we almost don't know their names individually. They are Lewis and Clark, and they were complete partners. Matter of fact, most people don't know the story is that Meriwether Lewis was given the captaincy. He told Clark he would make him a partner. And even though the Congress told Lewis he couldn't, he stayed and made William Clark a complete partner. They were equals in every way. And not one time, not one time in three years did any of the men ever see a division between them. No one ever knew that really uh, Meriwether Lewis outranked William Clark they were complete partners. And that collaborative model of leadership, I believe we see, in the, we see in the scriptures and with the apostles, and I think we see it in the church in its best, and I think we see it when the body of Christ comes together. And I, it was one of the things that I had to learn, is how do I lead more collaboratively and not just depend upon my own you know, authority and, and um, title? I want to thank Martha Bryce for calling in from Sarasota to get that second copy of our book today. I know we've got a couple more copies we can give away. Just call into the studio line now at 877-943-9673. When, when you look at the churches that have now been following you and they've been listening to you and you've been, you've been having these conversations over the last decade, what has that change looked like? Are you starting to see a wave of this kind of change sweep across America, or is it more like a, you know, a... a a little drop with little waves from a little drop of water on a lake. Well, I think mostly more than anything, what you're seeing is a bunch of people who are basically waking up and recognizing that we can't do things the way we used to, which I love because I think the hardest words, and, and, and actually sociologists will tell us this, the hardest three words for anybody to say are, I don't know. It's harder to say than I love you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. The hardest words are, I don't know. And what the Church needs to do is say, God, I don't know how to be the Christian you need me to do in the world today, but I know you know. Like, we become learners. And remember, disciple is simply a word for learner. It's just the word for learner. And so what I'm discovering is there's a lot more humility and leadership, and a lot more openness to try new things, to, to new experiments. Um, one of my mentors said to me, you know, I believe that human plan A is never God's plan A. So your job is to fail as fast as quickly and get to plan B, C, or D, because <laughs> that's probably going to be plan A. And, you know, it's interesting because he's a very successful businessman who taught me that. Plan to fail as fast as possible so you can get to plan B, C, or D. I like that. And, and, yeah, I, I like that. So when you look at what was the hardest thing for you going through this paradigm shift in your mind, what was the hardest thing for you personally? The hardest part for me actually was exactly that. It was admitting, it was, it was what I call overcoming the expert expectation. It was having to admit that God was telling me to lead a people, and, to, and now I participate in leading in, in theological education, Christian higher education, another industry that's in the middle of rapid change, and having to say, God, we don't have all the answers. The experts 
uh, don't have all the answers. We have to discern your will, and we've got to be faithful and learn as we go. And that's still one of the hardest things I do every single day. Well, and it's tough because the old experts that that really led the way in seminaries across this country and around the world, a lot of them, what they had to teach from a from a theological standpoint, no problem. God hasn't changed, but the execution has radically changed, and some of them are being relegated to the second and the third bottom shelf because it's not they're not at the top of their game because they didn't know what we were going to face, and so yeah, yeah, that's it's, it's that's a tough difficult. thing. So yeah, talk to really, me. I said for many people who are my age or older, I say it's very hard to acknowledge that right when you thought the world was going to get easier for you, pastor, you're going to pastor a church, you're now going to have lots of experience, people are going to respect you, you've got a good title, you've got some gray hair. It's exactly that moment when it became the hardest. And right when you thought you were going to get the coast downstream, you actually have to drop the canoes and climb the mountains. Yeah, yeah, and at fifty, you never really thought you'd. Well, gosh, I got to start all over again. Exactly. But that's really what it is. It really is. So you mentioned several steps in the book that in order to change or shift the culture within any organization, but specifically within the church organizations you were working with, that you had some things specifically you had to do in order to 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 lead off the map. You mentioned, listen, you got to give the work back to the people who care most about it. Explain what in the context of the church, what do you mean? Well, very often people show up at churches, and they basically show up like consumers rather than a community. So you say, hey, do you care about children? They go, yes, thank you. Please take care of my children while I uh, go to worship. Well, yeah, there's good, it's good to have professional Christian workers, uh, children, you know, children's staff. But more and more, what you have to say to people is, if we want our children to grow up as a generation who care deeply about the gospel, we all need to raise our children together. Uh, it's my colleagues here at the Fuller Youth Institute tell, say, talk all the time when they talk about a sticky faith. It comes from having multiple adults involved in the lives of children. Well, that means if you care about children, I've got to give that work back to you, and you've got to come join us in the process. That's really different than the day when we let the professionals take care of it all. Right. So talk about how you, uh, I love this one, stay connected to your critics. That was a really good uh, part of this book. Yeah, so it's very, I think, very tempting to think when you're a Christian, um, conflict is bad, or if I'm in conflict, either, then I need to probably distance. And the truth of the matter is, you need to stay much more deeply committed to those people who are critics, because they're going to teach you what's not working. And over time, especially in a church community, I'm very aware of the fact that very often when people are criti- critical, it's not that they are you know, mean or unfaithful. It's that they really believe they're doing God's will, too. And so it makes me humble. We have to stay together, stay in relationship, and discern God's will together. And I think it just reminds us that we're always, I always say that, that we have to stay calm, we have to stay connected, and when we're convinced that this is the will of God, we need to stay the course. But that's a really difficult thing for people who think they have all the answers. That's uh, very hard. And, and a lot of church leaders, they don't want to hear from guys like me who are business people who look at yeah. who, who are out there engaging the culture, which is rapidly changing. You talk about business culture that's changed. Oh, my goodness. In the last 20 years, nobody anticipated that the Internet would absolutely shift everything upside down when it came to every aspect of our society, especially business and especially church. But church leaders don't want to hear from people like us on the outside. They want our checks. They want us to, you know, write a check, but they don't really want to hear. They don't want to hear from us as their critics. They, they think that we're just complainers. 
Right. This is exactly why at Fuller we have the Dupree Center for Leadership that's been named after Max Dupree, who was a business leader, the CEO of the Herman Miller Company. We're a seminary that is deeply engaged with business leaders. Why? Because Christian business leaders have taught us a lot of wisdom about, about the mission of God in the world, and we need to reflect with them on ways in which the gospel needs to be embodied in business as a mission field. And so what we're trying to overcome is this sacred-secular split that the gospel knows nothing about. It all belongs to the Lord. It's one universe that is under one Lord, and we have to be faithful to Him. And so, we have, so, so we've learned, I learned as much, mostly my, this book is my distilling the very best leadership wisdom from, from different fields, and then using my background as a theologian to be able to interpret that through the Scriptures so that we find the wisdom in it. You know, there's so much, but I want to hear this other point, because you mentioned one of those points here. Give give the work back to the people who care most about it. Engage the mature and motivated. That one seems self-explanatory, so I didn't spend much time on it. Stay connected to your critics. But this one, expect sabotage. Talk about that. Yeah. Um, one of the real, real geniuses in a lot of this thinking is a rabbi named Ed Friedman. And Ed Friedman said, you have not accomplished change until after you've survived the sabotage. If you think of that for a moment, he says sabotage is normal. It is simply good people who get scared and who then say, you know, I'm not sure we want to do that. It's, it's the Israelites six weeks after the parting of the Red Sea, six weeks, who are saying, you know, let's go back. At least we can have leeks and onions. And, yeah. and, and every leader has to know a day is going to come when you're going to face sabotage. Todd, there's good news at the end of the story for Lewis and at the at the middle of the story for Lewis and Clark. They get to the end of the Missouri. They're right on the edge of the Rockies in Idaho. And if you haven't taken the train across from from Minneapolis over to uh, uh, to to Idaho, you don't even know what this really looks like. But what was the good news waiting for them there? Well, I think the best good news they got was there was two things. Number one. They actually had people in front of them who were willing to help them, and they had people even in their midst. One of the great stories is the story of Sacagawea, um, this Native American nursing teenage mother who was not lost. God so provided—she was home. She was, in, she was the only person who was in her regular terrain. And God had already provided, they didn't know. And I think the church is filled with voices of people who are ready to help and ready to move us into the future, and we just haven't been listening. And I think we're going to discover the great, beautiful strength of the diversity of the church. They also rediscovered their mission. They realized they weren't just about finding a water route that would help the economics of the country, though that was critical. They were people who were going to try to discover a whole new world. And they did. They, they, they just said they proceeded on, and they kept learning, and they kept going. And I think right now the church is rediscovering, hey, we, the church is the body of Christ on a mission, and we are not going to rest until God's kingdom comes, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And now's our moment to recommit ourselves to it. And, 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 and we, as we end there, the church is not dying. It just needs to shift in, in how it does, how it engages the body of Christ and engages those, the lost in our culture. And there's good news out there. You got to get a copy of this book if you're in leadership in a church, Canoeing the Mountains. Todd Bolzinger, thank you so much. I know we could have talked about this for three hours, but I'm so grateful. Thanks for writing the book, following the Lord's lead. And I look forward to more conversations as this thing rolls out across the country. Thank you, Jim. You know, as we come to the end of another I Work For Him program, I really hope you were inspired today. 
talking about change. I know that that's a difficult thing for everybody, but thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Jose Cruz for doing a great job. Hey, make sure you thank our show sponsors. Go out to iWorkForHim.com and on the bottom of the front page shows everybody involved in keeping this show on the air each and every day. Have you gone out to iWorkForHim and committed to join the nation yet? Just as the church today, the body of Christ needs to adjust how it does church on Sundays. The, the apostles had to do the same thing. Remember, they were cozy in Jerusalem, having thousands and thousands of people come to Christ. And all of a sudden, the persecution came. And all of a sudden, the Jews were, were spread out all over the Roman Empire. And they had to breach out to, to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then Samaria, and then the end of the world. And they had to constantly relearn and relearn and relearn how to adjust to the message of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. And that's what we need to do. It's no different. Our culture has shifted. We're no longer living in Christendom, but we serve a living, powerful God who has given us the equipment to take our faith into the workplace each and every day. For us to make the difference on those, to bring our faith with us, to be a light to those we work with each and every day. That's what I Work For Him is all about. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower and I own my own business, but ultimately, I work for him. Hey.